3: my mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teachers. So call me at one 800 743 CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Is this a Prince Market? or a monkey's market. After State Day, where the Dow lost 10 points, it has to be advanced 0.03%, and Nasdaq like inched up 0.14%. After spending much of the day bright green, we need to know what song this market is singing. Because if we're in Prince mode, and we're partying like it's 1999, the averages are about to get trashed. But if we're in monkey's territory, we're believers we couldn't leave this market if We tried. And that is a very different story. This may be the only scenario where the monkeys are actually better than Prince. As stocks go higher, the gulf between these two views gets wider. We're hearing more and more chatter about how this market's reminiscent of 1999, when the NASDAQ exploded higher, only to explode outright in 2000. (laughs) Believe me, you do not want your portfolio to party like it's 1999, or more cogently, the end of 1999. Well, then there's the more bullish camp, the believers. And there's not a trace of doubt in their minds. Thank you, Neil Diamond, who really wrote that song, not the monkeys. Although I follow Mickey Dolan. He's a good following on uh, Twitter. So who's right? i got to be honest. I'm actually not sure. Better just to own that hung jury verdict, isn't it? I mean, we've been scaling back some, not all of our highest flyers from my travel trust. You can follow along uh, by joining the ActionWordsPlus.com club, and you can see the rationale. I was taught that discipline trumps conviction, and my discipline says at least ring the register on some of your hottest positions after this miraculous run. I can't walk away from my discipline gospel. It's kept me in the game for 41 years. Ooh, but it hurts. The house of pain. Every sale has been wrong, so to speak, (gasps) because most of these stocks just keep churning higher after we sell them. Many stocks have run a great deal since my last sale. Sale of E! I just don't want to be accused of being too similar to Prince. Admittedly, uh, the late great singer doesn't have a lot in common with Jimmy Chill, which is my 2020 persona. That said, there are many stocks that you can still justify owning here. So why don't we do this? Why don't we go through an exercise of being a believer, not a partier? And I can defend to you my convictions, something that admittedly is getting harder and harder to do. We're going to start with one big company everybody knows. Let's start with Apple. Okay, eight months ago this thing was at 183. Now it's at 318. Well, shouldn't that be case closed to sell? This morning, on us walk on the street. The always skeptical David Faber posited that the run in Apple is all about multiple expansion, meaning we're simply paying more for the same earnings. That's bad. But what if it isn't the same earnings I shot back? What if Apple reports a huge upside surprise next week? Thanks to the amazing demand for the iPhone 11. We just got word that Apple's raised its semiconductor orders for the new phone and the accessory business is on fire because of the love for the AirPod Pro, which I can personally attest are extraordinary. Can't believe I got them. In other words, if spending a long time in the humdrum wilderness... Apple might finally be a growth stock again. Then when I was on halftime with my buddy Scott Wapner, we were fortunate enough to have the legendary Mark Cuban on. And he pointed out that the whole character of, I, of Apple, well, it's now changing with the rise of their extremely reliable and lucrative recurring service revenue stream. You know I'm a big believer in Apple as a service provider. My view, own Apple, don't trade it. What else might be worth owning? How about Netflix? Now, last night, the streaming entertainment giant reported an imperfect quarter, and the stock got hammered, disappointing domestic sign-ups. Now, this is a subscriber growth story, so the bears came out in full force, told us the company's growth days are behind it. To them, the buyers going into the quarter were partying like it was 1999. I've liked Netflix for a long time, and there was nothing on last night's video conference call that really made me less of a believer. Here's what matters. Netflix is an incredible platform. Yes, the stock is overvalued on an earnings basis, but I think at $143 billion, that's the market cap, it's pretty reasonable. Because the company has such a massive global, not domestic, but global opportunity. While their domestic subscriber numbers were indeed subpar, the international numbers grew much faster than expected. What about all that newfound competition, the streaming business board is hearing about? CEO Reed Hastings explained that's a natural evolution. Uh, at one time, rabbit broadcast TV ruled the entertainment world, then cable, and now it's streaming. And Netflix is integral to streaming, which is something Mark Cuban, a longtime Netflix investor, emphasized on Halftime today. He pointed out that most new TVs come with Netflix built-in. Who else is really built-in? The secret sauce, though? AI, artificial intelligence. One of the few companies really gets it. Netflix knows what you want before you want it. How powerful is their technology? Sure, I want to watch The Witcher and the documentary about Aaron Hernandez. Uh, he who's the tight end for the Patriots. She was convicted of murder, died in prison. Well, these are must-watches. But the other night, I had some free time. I wanted to know what Netflix had in store for me. My wife was out of town, looking for something to do. Five years ago, I interviewed Reed Hastings on one of our four races in the San Francisco Bureau. In preparation, I got up at 2.30 a.m., and called customer service, which I heard was legendary. And I said I wanted to watch the best movie about the Soviet Army's invasion of Germany at the end of World War II. The woman, Selena, if I recall, within seconds asked me if I'd watch The Fall of Berlin, which chronicles the tale of a soldier on the Eastern Front who fights his way to Berlin, uh, allegedly reviewed, if not edited by Stalin himself. Bingo! Perfect match. It was precisely what I wanted. Now, fast forward to last Monday night. I was itching for something to do. Well, without even prompting from me, pops up into my queue. T-34! What's T-34? It's the legendary Russian tank that took the Soviet Army from Moscow to Berlin! A mythological tank crew challenges the Nazis and shows the superiority of Soviet engineering. Okay, so granted, I have niche tastes. But how's that for artificial intelligence? Many companies claim they have AI ability. Netflix changes your life, or at least your viewing patterns. Let me put two more in front of you. So many people like to talk about how this market has become too expensive. They say there are no bargains left. I, I say, wait a second. How about IBM and Broadcom? Last night, IBM reported an upside surprise. Legitimate, excellent cash flow, great numbers from the Red Hat division, and most important, fantastic mainframe sales. Okay, just over 10 times earnings. 4.5% yield. I think IBM re- represents a decent investment for as long as that mainframe cycle keeps working. Broadcom, AVGO, it's got terrific cell phone orders, but it's been held back because the company paid $18.9 billion for a company called CA Technologies. It's a business heavily aligned with IBM's mainframe. It's bought a couple of years ago. So what do you have here? A well-run semiconductor company, the hottest group in the market, that sells for just 13 times earnings, a considerable discount to the rest of the group. Oh, and Broadcom's got a 4.2% yield to boot. It's a buy tomorrow morning. Sure, IBM still has several faltering divisions, and aside from Red Hat, its classic cloud business isn't growing nearly as fast as I'd like. Eventually, the company will have trouble meeting estimates next year, perhaps when the mainframe cycle peters out. Although it shows no signs of slowing now, it's getting aggressive. It's getting better. I like it here. All right, so what do all these examples show? Simply put, they explain how you can justify believing in a couple of high-profile stocks and how it's not all that much of a leap of faith when you consider the pros as well as the cons. The bottom line, well, now you know what makes me a believer. It's why I don't want to leave this market, not this party, but this market, even as I'd often like to try. Let's go to Lewis in New York. Lewis!
4: Hey, Jim, how are you doing, man? This uh, you got Park Slope Brooklyn represented here today, and i um, real excited. First time caller, and uh, thank you for uh, letting me in. Well,
3: Park Slope, you're uh, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from me, and I am so glad you're on the show. How can I help? All right. Well, I have to say, dinner and drinks on me. Next time you're in the neighborhood, man, cool. just give a call. Nobody pays for so Bar San Miguel. That's our call. What's going on? Hey, tell you what, I want
4: to talk about Schlumberger. Why? Uh, because about seven plus weeks ago, you were somewhat bullish on them. And um, as a result, I decided to look at some fundamental and technical data on them. I decided to invest. I did pretty well. They, they went up several dollars after I invested. And, um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, they've obviously been dipping in spite of what I thought was a decent earnings report. Last week, where they beat, you know, the street estimates on EPS and revenues. So I'm struggling a little bit to understand why the stock, all of well, it. You is- and
3: me both. OK, the reason I gave you that chagrin, that shoulder shrug that you can't see is because they report a really good quarter. Uh, absolutely good. They, they've got plenty of cash. The dividends totally protected. But the group is so from hunger, as my late mom would say, that it brings down slumberjay even though they report a good quarter. I'm staying. My, my child is staying Pat. I think you should, too. But, wow, when you hear Rusty Brazil later in the show, you're going to know how hard it is to own. Hey, speaking of oil and gas, let's go to Eddie in Louisiana. Eddie. Jim. Thank you for having me on the show. How are you? I am real good. How about you?
4: I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, My question is about Virgin uh, Galactic, SPCE. Yes. It's had a great couple of
0: weeks,
3: and I just wanted to see your thoughts on if there's any more room to run on this stock, and... There's any real value in this stock as well. Thank okay, I think this is a short squeeze. There are no earnings. There's a uh, kind of a blank check here. Uh, I don't recommend owning it, but it, you're playing a short squeeze. And short squeeze, you don't know when they are going to end. So you can ride it. But holy cow, I'm not a believer. But hold it just a second. I am a believer in those stocks that I mentioned that were four of them. This market is not a fairy tale. It can be the real thing if you're selective. Selective meaning Apple, meaning Netflix on a dip, meaning Broadcom, meaning IBM. Well, that's okay. You can be believers. May have money tonight. From the crisis in Iran to worries over disruptions to Libya's crude oil uh, output. Well, there's been plenty to focus on in the oil patch. I'm sitting down with one of the smartest guys in the industry, my go-to guy, to find out what it means for the sector. You don't want to miss it. Then travel stocks are taking a coronavirus hit. What does history say about the move? Should be a buyer? I'm going to open up my playbook. And after a pretty staggering run, is there really anything that you can confidently buy in the med tech area? I'm going off the charts to find out. So stay with Kramer. When we started fretting about the coronavirus outbreak, the big worry in this market was Iran. Remember that? When everyone was acting like we were on the eve of World War III, I told you that would be a mistake. I thought there was a good chance President Trump would de-escalate the situation. More importantly, even if the situation had gotten out of hand, I was adamant that Iran could no longer really hurt us by disrupting oil supplies in the region. We just have too much domestic production these days. We're no longer hostage to the Middle East like we were. But if anything, I understated the case. This morning, Rusty Brazil of RBN Energy, perhaps the best energy analyst on Earth and my go-to guy on issues like oil supply, put out a note to subscribers where he pointed out that historically an Iranian face-off like this might have sent Brent Crew to 100 bucks a barrel. Instead, Brent peaked at 68 and changed. It's gotten hammered ever since because of the shale revolution. It's fundamentally changed the dynamics of this market, and Rusty saw it all happening. So let's take a closer look at the oil and gas space with Rusty Brazil. He's the president and principal energy market consultant for RBN Energy. Uh, Rusty, welcome back to Mad Money.
4: Thank you. Tim. Thank you. Uh, Rusty, it.
3: people don't realize what happens is, is that I'll email you a quarter of 6 i They'll say, come on, Rusty. This has <laughs> got to move oil. This, it's whatever event. This has yep. got to move
4: oil. This one had to move oil. What the hell? We got 13 million barrels a day of production. And remember, OPEC and NOPEC have 1.7 million barrels a day of production that took off the market in order to boost prices. That's just sitting there. And you put that together with China's kind of subdued, and you put all those three things together, and it's going to take a real serious supply disruption over an extended period of time to have a real impact on this market.
3: We've seen the rate count drop, uh, leading me to believe that there's going to be a slowdown in drilling, you know, pull back pullback, right. Calibrate pullback. Is that going to cause things to get firmer?
4: It's... The- Production is not going to grow as fast this year as it grew last year. But that doesn't mean that production is not going to grow. The rigs that are coming out are not the most efficient rigs. The rigs that are staying on are the high-test, best rigs that they've got, and they're using them in all the best of the best sweet spots. So that means we're still going to have an increase in production. It's going to be mostly in the Permian. Uh, Oil out five years? Well, at five years in terms of in, in terms of pricing, is uh, as, as long as we're still at the level that we are right now in terms of how much fracking that we can do and the the general economy, we're talking about pricing about where they are right now. Jeez. And in other words, we've been in this cycle uh, of upper fifties, you know, lower sixties prices for you know, darn near five years now.
3: Now, your note this morning talks about the Permian, but also we still have some other basins. We do I mean, together. Uh, this could be long-lasting, but the Permian seems like it's the mother
4: load still. It is the mother load. You can think of it like 75% of, of all of the kick that we're getting is coming from the Permian, because the Permian is, is really like several basins stacked up on top of right. each other, right? So we just get a lot of bang for the buck.
3: Everyone's talking to me about potential bankruptcies in natural gas. Yeah. Natural gas is a, a, a incredibly low price. What's going to happen? Meltdown.
4: Well, meltdown. It's meltdown. We're, we're talking uh, ninety two today. The last time that The price of natural gas was at this level in January was $19.99. We we're actually thinking about writing a piece on that of something saying something like gas buyers are partying like it's
3: 1999 well, I know that one. Uh, <laughs> <From the top laughs> I you now what that tells me again is companies that are levered to natural gas they could be history
4: if they're levered to natural gas alone but remember about half of the United States the gas in the United States comes from associated gas that comes along with crude oil and NGLs those That's guys particularly in the Permian the typical Permian producer only receives about two or three percent of the revenue from a given well from natural gas. Everything else is coming from oil and NGLs. So, what happens when natural gas prices go down to folks in the Permian? Nothing.
3: Okay, That's important. Now, uh, the president just said that the Chinese be committed to spend fifty billion on liquefied natural gas. Do Do we have enough production to make that? Enough trains to
4: make that work? Well, there's a couple of things to note here. First of all, We can make a lot of of LNG production, and most of the production or a lot of the production in the United States is not destination-specific. So if it was going to Latin America, if it was going to Europe, it can turn around and divert and go to China if the market is there. The catch is that the Chinese have a 25% tariff on LNG. Uh Uh-oh, that hasn't come off. We still have tariffs on a lot of Chinese goods, so whether or not that comes off or not is going to make a big difference as to whether it's really LNG or propane or butane, which are also part of the same deal, but also have tariffs in excess of 25%.
3: Okay, Uh, people in Davos, they're talking about being green. Uh, We had Parsley on. I know you think highly of the company. They've cut down the number of flaring, but can a fossil company, fossil fuel, ever be green?
4: Ever be green? They can be greener. Okay. Okay. Uh, and uh, there are several companies right now that are actually using CO2 flooding to actually boost production of crude oil. So in other words, they're taking CO2 out of the ground and they're putting it back in the ground to boost production. Who's doing that? It's fantastic! Is one of the companies Which one? That's doing it? Occidental. Occidental. Uh huh. Wow. I mean, that's green. That's great. I mean, it's greener. It's greener. Right. It's greener. But in terms of, you know, the whole flaring issue, if you're in the Permian and you were a producer that did not get pipeline transportation out of the Permian, it's maxed out. So if you're in the the Permian and you do not have pipeline transportation, then you're stuck with either selling your gas for a real cheap price to somebody who does or cutting back your drilling program, which no producer wants to do, or flaring. On this question, Mesh limited Partnerships, a lot of wealthy people watch the show.
3: Uh, They cease to be growth. They're getting killed still. Uh, Can they ever come back?
4: Well, first of all, there's some MLPs that are in the right places and are doing the right things. So, New Star, Enterprise, there's some good ones. However, if you you look at the MLP space and the good ones, they actually yield, they actually have a pretty decent yield. So, their distributions... Sort of make up for their stock okay. appreciation issues. And the people that are looking at MLPs these days tend to be debt guys that are looking at that yield because the yield's pretty darn good, not stock appreciation, guys.
3: That's terrific. As always, you are the go-to guy. That's Rushy Brazil. He's president, principal energy markets consultant for RBN Energy. The way I start my morning every single day, I know I bug you, and I really <laughs> apologize. But you you know when I email you and you always come back instantly. May have money it's back after the break. Thank you.
0: But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything.
2: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
1: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
3: Last night I told you this coronavirus outbreak in China that's now spread to the United States could really damage certain sectors, at least temporarily. My forecast for this disease is some short-term pain. And I think you should stay away from the industries where there could be a real earnings hit, but get aggressive with stocks that come down simply as collateral damage to this coronavirus. How bad could this be for the market? You know what, maybe history can lend a hand. So, we want to explore how similar outbreaks have played out in the past, especially SARS in 2003 and Ebola in 2014. Now, before you freak out, I am not saying we have a SARS or Ebola like situation here. Not at all. The death toll at this point is far lower than SARS, although it's growing by the hour. I just want to consider the worst case scenario so that you understand the risk to buying stocks right now. What does history tell us? Let's start with the SARS outbreak in 2003. Because SARS belongs to the same family of diseases, it was a coronavirus epidemic in China, too. All told, more than 8,000 people caught the disease, 774 of them died, which is a terrifying mortality rate for a virus that can spread from person to person, like the coronavirus does. How did SARS play out? While the disease was first identified in February of 2003, the epidemic actually started in November of 2002 in southern China, At first, they thought it was atypical pneumonia. By March of 2003, the World Health Organization issued a global health alert and figured out that SARS was caused by a type of coronavirus. By late March, it had made landfall in the United States, and the Centers for Disease Control were inspecting planes and ships from China and Singapore. Now, it wasn't until July that the World Health Organization declared SARS was contained. Basically, SARS lasted eight months. Remember that figure, eight. But the level of concern really peaked in February and May. Now, as it turns out, the first quarter of 2003 was a pretty ugly period for the stock market. I think some of that pain was driven by fears of a global pandemic. I mean, take a look. It's ugly, right? The worst of the pain came in January. And in January, when the disease was being discovered and we started hearing about it nonstop, get ready for that, perhaps. Uh, from peak to 12, the S&P 500 lost more than 15 percent of its value in roughly two months. Then in March, there was a shorter, more intense decline from higher levels that shaved off nearly 6% in 10 days' time. The source of the pain? Look at the Dow Transports. That's where it's really concentrated. This plunged 21%, okay, from mid-January through early March. Uh, That SARS put a damper on global travel, so it made sense for the transports to get hammered. You know what? We're seeing the same kind of travel shutdowns right now. Alerts out of China. But, and this is a gigantic but, the rebound from the SARS bottom was incredibly swift. Look at this. From the lows in March through the end of 2003, the S&P 500 rallied 41%. And the Dow transports, well, they surged 57%. Look at these. These are runs that we want to capture, right? We don't want to miss those. That's why this chart, this charts and the data that I'm giving you are so vital. I think SARS is really the worst case scenario. So far, the current uh, coronavirus isn't spreading as rapidly. It's also less deadly. If we have a SARS-like trajectory, you can expect a sharp decline followed by a sustained rebound once the disease is contained. Now, it may not be to the same parameters of this kind of move, but it's very important. You might get a condensed Good bounce. For another comparison, our experience in the United States might be more like the Ebola outbreak in 2014. Ebola is much harder to spread than SARS, but if you can catch the disease, it's a lot more lethal, especially since we didn't have any kind of cure back then. From 2014 through 2016, Ebola devastated West Africa. Ultimately, there were more than 28,000 cases, 11,325 deaths. However, here in the United States, our Ebola scare was much more condensed, taking place in the fall of 2014. A couple of Americans caught the disease in Africa and brought it back here. The first one died and a handful of healthcare workers were also exposed to the disease. It wasn't even a real outbreak in the U.S. as Ebola was quickly contained here. But the stock market freaked out because well, Ebola is anything. This is just terrifying. So let's take a look at this uh, period from mid-September to mid-October in 2014. The S&P plunged nearly 10%. Okay, But then we bounced right back at the end of October. We were back to the pre-Ebola levels. How about the Dow Transports? Look at these. They fell 12%, but then rebounded much harder. All told, the Ebola scare turned out to be a fabulous buying opportunity. You had to be there, so you couldn't. You know Obviously, this seemed like a dangerous level here here, but then look at the springboard. I mean, that's kind of what we're trying to catch even though I know that we're really trying to gain lethality, which is not something I would feel comfortable doing, but here we go. Now, what could the current coronavirus outbreak mean for specific sectors? We know the larger airlines were hammered yesterday. Anything with international exposure is an obvious target if the epidemic takes too long to. Taint. Steve will just put out a great piece of research showing what happened to passenger revenue per available seat mile for the airlines during the Ebola scare. The damage was mostly cordoned off to flights between the U.S. and Africa. Still, given that Asia is a much larger market for the major airlines, they predict the Delta, American, and United could take a meaningful hit. United Continental is the most Asia-Pacific exposure. Interesting. United Continental, they reported a good number last night, uh, and the stock didn't lift, and then it got hit again today. That is this coronavirus. What else should you be watching? Really, anything that gets hurt if there's a downtick in travel. Like the hotels. Let's take Marriott. They've got a major Asian business. It tumbled 4% yesterday. In fact, Marriott's CEO Arnie Sorensen spoke to CNBC at Davos yesterday, and he mentioned that his Hong Kong business is already down 50% because of the protests, but of course because of the Chinese economic slowdown and the illness. Marriott's a good case study because they've been around for a long time. During the SARS epidemic in 2013, I'm sorry, in 2003, this stock lost 18% of its value in less than three months, and they didn't nearly have as big a Chinese exposure as they do now. During the Ebola scare in 2014, it plummeted 19% in just one month. But just like the major averages, Mary came back with a vengeance both times. Those outbreaks were definitely buying opportunities. I think you're going to get the same thing here with a high-quality hotelier. I think the cruise lines could be worth buying into weakness, too. Norwegian cruise line holdings has the least China exposure and the most U.S. exposure of the majors. So if you, 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 if it gets hit... Well, come on, pounce! But you got to be patient. Got to let it come in first. I'm more worried about the casinos that do a lot of business in Macau, the Chinese equivalent of Las Vegas. Except it's bigger than Vegas. If things do get worse, I recommend avoiding the likes of Las Vegas Sands, Wynn Resorts, and MGM. Finally, some luxury retailers depend on lots of spending from the Chinese tourists. That's why Kering and LVMH, both of which trade primarily in France, got hit so hard on Monday and Tuesday. Now, I say keep an eye on Macy's Nordstrom, got flagship stores in New York, depending on tourism and traffic. I like Estee Lauder, which was downgraded yesterday based on a potential sales slowdown in Hong Kong and mainland China. But I got to see some more downgrades, maybe some estimate cuts before I pound the table because the stock's up so much. Again, though, China may get the coronavirus outbreak under control faster than we expect. This doesn't have to be like SARS or Ebola. We're talking worst-case scenario here. Markets don't always get hammered by these outbreaks. For instance, in 2009, do you remember the H1N1 pandemic? It caused approximately 275,000 hospitalizations, 12,500 deaths. This was a disease that started in the U.S. Yet it wasn't enough to derail a stock market that was finally rebounding. From the financial crisis. We never really sold off on that Zika virus, uh, despite hearing about it for most of the year of, of 2016. I suspect the Ebola scare is the best analogy, and not just because it's fairly recent. The averages were at all time highs going to the Ebola episode, just like now. So if this gets bad, expect that short, sharp decline. Bottom line, when you consider the history of these disease outbreaks, I think you want to avoid the airlines the hotels, the cruise lines, casinos, and tourism-dependent retailers here. But that's just for the moment. If the coronavirus continues to spread and stocks get hit, then what we have to do is we have to think about buying the high-quality names into weakness that I just mentioned. For the moment, I'm more concerned about sidestepping that potential pain than I am about harvesting the potential gain. Let's go to Frank in Michigan. Frank.
4: Hi, Jim. I have a question about Tyson Foods. I had a small position in it, added to it uh, after your comments on it because of all their ability to ship all this pork that... China desperately needs. It looks like a, an inverted head and shoulders uh, on their chart, and they've got a lot of debt. I'm thinking about selling the stock. What's your take?
3: No, no. I mean, my Chapel Trust owns it. We bought some today. Why wouldn't? It's only 13 times earnings. But this stock has been retreating. Why? Because Beyond Meat stock was doing so well. Well, we now know the Impossible Burger's looking like it's not selling like we thought. It was almost as if it's a zero-sum situation. Now that the, uh, uh, Beyond Meat can start reversing a little, I think the money's going to come back to Tyson. They are the big winner. Uh, if China runs out of pork, Suzette in Pennsylvania. Suzette,
4: hi Jim, love your show.
3: Oh, thank you, Suzette.
4: I have a two-part question for okay. you. Um, AstraZeneca stock, symbol AZN, has had a great run the past eighteen months, up yes. almost fifty percent. Was interested in your take as a long-term investment, and also, can you explain how ADRs work for non-U.S. based companies? Thank-
3: well, they're they're basically the you're getting the same stock, so it's kind of, uh, there's a transparent nature. Uh, you're buying AstraZeneca here versus there. Uh, obviously, if the stock goes up big here and uh, big there, it doesn't go up here. That's the real opportunity. It hardly ever happens because there's arbitrage. Just AstraZeneca has a marvelous oncological franchise, much better than people realize, and that's why the stock's going up. The coronavirus outbreak could spread damage to certain uh, sectors temporarily. If history is any guide, prepare for some short-term pain. But then some nice gain What's where Mad Money Head? It's one of the hottest sectors in this market. But could the medical device place continue their amazing run? I'm going off the charts to find out. Then I'm tackling the Tesla dilemma. and telling you how you should approach this red hot stock. Maybe the hottest I've ever seen. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. a pretty staggering run. Is there anything you can buy confidently at these levels? I talked about it a little bit at the top, but one of the hottest groups in the market, the Medical Systems stocks, are looking interesting. According to Investors Business Daily, out of 197 industry groups, the Medical Systems cohort is the 12th best performer right now, including the number one stock in their entire coverage universe. The problem is, With stocks soaring almost every day, think about how much had to go wrong for us to even get a mild pullback yesterday. You can feel like you're taking your life in your hands when you buy anything. So is there anything that makes sense in the medical space? If we get a coronavirus-induced drubbing down the road, this is a group that you can confidently buy into weakness. And that's why tonight we're going off the charts with Elba Bob Wang. He's the founder of explosiveoptions.net, as well as being the brilliant technician in the all star team behind the street.com's trifecta stocks newsletter. And he's the author of Know Your Options, focused on three of the best performing medical device names. Uh, they're all, well, two out of fear, familiar to you InMode, Intuitive Surgical, ISRG, And Brooker, new name for the show. These three stocks have risen sharply over the past few months, and I believe they'll keep on trucking for some time. So let's start with the daily chart of InMode, and that's INMD for your home gamers. This is a fresh-faced IPO name from the class of 2019 that I just recommended back in October at 24 and change. It's now at 46. Okay, so last month I told you you got to ring the register on part of your position here because bears make money, bulls make money, and pigs, well, greedy pigs get slaughtered. Stock has rallied 75% in a couple months. If that kind of move, you gotta take something off the table, don't you? Anything else is just pure greed. We don't like greed. However, even up here, in mode's relatively inexpensive. And it's got a terrific concept. I don't know if you remember, but this is the company that makes minimally invasive energy-based systems for face and body contouring, medical aesthetics, and women's health. Their technology uses radio waves to penetrate your skin to remodel the fat tissue underneath, meaning Inmo can give you the equivalent of a facelift or liposuction without the need for invasive surgery. Wow. Hey, you know what? This is the ideal pick for the Instagramer, a medical device company that makes you look good and gets you out of the hospital faster and... Like presumably with a lot less pain. So, uh, how about this chart? Okay, this is Lang's favorite chart of the entire gr- group that we're going to be talking about. InMode has spent the first few months as a public company roaring higher. You know, this thing's just been a horse. Even as the stock's cooled off since mid-November. For the last couple months, it's been consolidating its earlier move. Boy, this is the type of thing that Lang just lives for. Why does he like it so much? First, InMode has strong volume trends. And here we look at the vibe. Uh, when it goes up, it tends to go up on big volume, which is a good sign. It tells you the big institutional money managers are in there, and they have an immense appetite for the name. Literally, you can literally see every time it goes up, you get that spurt in volume. Second, is number one in the Investor's Business Daily 50. That's a list of 50 growth stocks in Investor's Business Daily's algorithms say you should keep an eye on. Do you know that history says that is a great endorsement? Third, check out the Moving Average Convergence divergence, or the MACD down here. Uh, this is a technical tool that helps chartists detect changes in a stock's trajectory before, not during, not after, but before they happen. Earlier this month, the MACD made a bullish crossover, okay, uh, where the black line goes above the red. You see that? Uh, and that's one of the most reliably positive signals in the book. We've been doing this segment for years, and every time I've seen this, it's Almost every time it's been right. Since that crossover a couple weeks ago, in-modes rallied a quick nine bucks. That tells you this thing's gotten its momentum back after spending the previous month and a half in consolidation mode. There's the quick nine. Meanwhile, Lang likes that in-modes made a consistent pattern of higher highs and higher lows since it gapped up in early September. Okay, so this is you can see those higher highs. Uh, plus, the stock's got a floor of support at its 50-day moving average. That's the blue line around 43, down 3 bucks from where it's currently trading. MO could jump to 57 bucks, around where it peaked in November before it runs into any kind of resistance. And it can if it can clear, clear that hurdle, well, I know this sounds a little well, impossible, but blank thinks it could go to 75 or 80. Wow. I mean, that's something. Thought about a double, almost. All right, next up, there's a daily chart of Intuitive Surgical. That's the eminence grise of the fast-growing medical device space. Now, you know we like ISRG for that Da Vinci robotic surgical system. Lang likes this picture because the stock's been red hot with a series of higher highs and higher lows. Recent volume trends, very encouraging. Now, then there's the Chaikin money flow down here, CMF. Uh, it, that measures the level of buying or selling pressure in a stock. Intuitive Surgical, well, the money flow, it's been very strong for months. Then there's the Ichimoku cloud. Uh, That's that green space on the chart. This is a technical tool that uses a bunch of moving averages to uh, to give you a read on the whole situation at a glance. When the green is expanding as it is right here, okay, you see it just going, getting bigger? When it's doing that, it tells us that a stock is likely to head higher, which is exactly what we're seeing right now. Now, the stock just gapped up big time last week Uh, after intuitive surgical pre-announced some fabulous sales and earnings. I was kind of blown away. I mean, I, you know, I've been looking for big things, but this was incredible. You're not exactly early on this one, but Lang thinks it's worth buying into any kind of pullback. So keep that in mind if the, uh, what we're talking about at the top, even when we talk about at the top of the show, which is the illness, really kind of clouds people's thinking. Or maybe you have some sort of exogenous event that we haven't even thought about. Finally, how about the daily chart of Bruker? Now, this is a company that's been around for 60 years, evolving into a leading player in medical analytics, instrumentation, and diagnostics. Brooker's been on fire lately, up 35% from its lows in August. Lang likes the volume trends here. You can see that when it spikes, its volume's big. There's a good example. Uh, With the stock rising in robust volume over the past couple of months. You've got a couple, a series of higher highs and higher lows. The Ichimoku Cloud is green, same deal. See it expanding right there and opening up, which is very bullish. The MACD indicator made that bullish crossover we like to see earlier this month. It's like Brooker's chart has every positive signal you might want, uh, but Lang likes it here, but he'd like it even more in a pullback. Brooker's currently at $53 and it's got a floor of support at 51, okay, uh, where the stock held in for the last month. If it retests the 51 level, Lang says you should up the truck. Bottom line, in a market that's had a major move higher and could potentially see some turbulence from the coronavirus outbreak, the charts, as interpreted interpreter Bob Lang, say you should be ready to pick up some in-mode, intuitive, surgical, and one we've never talked about, broker, into any weakness. May have Money is back after the break. It is time. It's up for the lightning round What's up, what's up, And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round My name is with Sybil in Louisiana. Sybil Yes,
4: sir. Hello, Mr. Kramer.
3: Hi, Sybil. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Of course. Uh, could you give me your opinion on Six Flags? I didn't like that quarter at all. I questioned the dividend strength. I don't even know if this company has anywhere near the cash flow I thought in the China uh, story that had been held out as good. It's now bad. Let's go to Gary in Indiana. Gary, Indiana. Hi, Jim. How are you tonight? I am good. How about you, Gary? Doing great. Well, how about a stock? I, I like
4: Shamira, C-I-M.
3: Yeah, Kramer. Well, you know what? This one's actually working, but my problem is it's got 9% yield. Here's my problem. I don't really understand what they own or how they got their positions, and therefore it's impossible for me to recommend it even as I see the stock going hard. Let's go to Oscar in New York. Oscar! (laughs) Hey, Kramer. How you doing? I am good, Oscar. How about you? Uh, doing the swimmingly. I right. have been long with Danaher for so long. You like it when my mom bought it in the 80s for me. Ah. Uh, periodically, I have rebalanced it so that it didn't dominate my portfolio. But frankly, it's been a diagonal line straight up for decades after decades after decades. My Chapel Trust sold it after a huge gig. Didn't think it continued to ramp higher. They then bought that GE division uh, that is very good med tech and it just continues to rally, and you know what? It's not done. My bad. Sold it too soon. Stay long. Josh in Illinois, Josh! Hey, Mr. Famer. Yeah. Got a question for you about sure. transfer. Et. Now, see, energy transfer is the kind of stock that uh, Rusty Brazil and I talk about all the time, which is it doesn't really have growth. It's got a good yield, but it's not necessarily a safe one if things go worse than they are. So I'm going to have to say no to that one. How about Ethan in Texas? Ethan. Hey there, Mr. Kramer. I'm calling from my dorm room at the University of Texas at Austin as a freshman business major. How are you doing today, sir? How much do you love that? I am good. How about you? I'm great. Thank you for asking. So I wanted to get your thoughts on Brookfield asset management, whether or not you think it is a buy
4: before the kind of, got. It's a great
3: pastiche. A lot of people compare it to uh, Warren Buffett and uh, Berkshire Hathaway. I'm not going to necessarily disagree with that, although obviously no one's ever going to trump the master, but that is a nice comparison. Timothy in Florida. Timothy. Hey, Jim. Timothy. Booyah. yeah.
4: Tim from Miami here. My question is about Elbram's
3: you know what? I've been torn out brands. I was thinking about doing a segment about how you might want to buy this because they could unlock the uh, the value here. But if they don't unlock the value, you're going to have an earnings shortfall, and I don't recommend stocks on uh, takeover or blank up if the earnings are no good. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round.
0: The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
3: How the heck do we explain this stunning, endless rally in the stock of Tesla, up more than 150 points in the last three weeks? Is it the mother of all short squeezes or investors simply realize that this is a tech stock with big earnings potential that just so happens to be in the car business? I mean, that is the Tesla dilemma, isn't it? What what in the world is driving this darn thing higher, causing a double in less than four months? First, let's consider the obvious. Let's consider the short squeeze. 18% of Tesla's shares have been shorted, according to the most recent data. While that's certainly a lot, it's not enough to explain the remarkable move we keep seeing day after day, including this one. Is it possible that investors have been shorting Tesla more heavily than we might realize from that statistic? Absolutely. Institutional money managers could be using all sorts of derivatives to bet against this thing. Well, we can't see those positions, but it makes a ton of sense to use instruments rather than simply shorting the common stock. When you lump that in with 18% of shares sold, well, then you know what? I think the short squeeze does play a big role in this rally. But that is certainly not the whole story. I know that because I'm not hearing about the fabled buy-ins, where the brokers have to deliver stock to the natural buyers, giving them no choice but to go into the open market, buy it, and credit it to their short-selling clients. In other words, if you're short 10,000 shares of Tesla but you can't deliver the stock uh, to a natural buyer, you lose control of the situation and your broker will just go into the open market and purchase it at any price to close out your position. Now, that might explain why Tesla's stock keeps surging every morning. Yeah, before the market opens. Every morning. Now, I've had a buy-in and the price was nowhere near where the stock was trading the day before. It was bought in the morning. However, this is not the kind of thing that should happen day after day after day. No, I think it's much more likely that Tesla's experiencing a wholesale re-rating here. Once institutional investors recognized that Solvency was off the table, and it is, they decided to re-evaluate Tesla not as an automaker, but as a tech stock. And hey, why not? Tesla's not really a car company. It's a tech company on wheels. That's what keeps confusing people, confounding them. Almost every major automaker now is an electric car. Yet almost none of these cars has any demand to speak of at all, except for Tesla. Some are incredibly, uh, some incredibly smart people have put a ton of thought and effort into these machines, and the rest of the industry is nowhere near catching up with them. Plus, Tesla has its own battery business that might turn out to have a genuine earnings power that we've never seen before because, well, the business community is embracing decarbonization in a major way, including batteries. Oh, and just imagine what happens if Tesla invents an electric car battery that can last 1,000 miles on a single charge. Seems like a safe bet that Elon Musk will get there before anybody else does, isn't it? Now, for years, Tesla seemed like the kind of tech company that had little hope of turning a profit anytime soon. It's been one of those rare tech names that Wall Street loves despite its lack of earnings, along with Amazon and Netflix. But a funny thing's happened in recent months. It's become clear that Tesla's about to have an earnings breakout. You heard me. Earnings breakout. The company might be able to make as much as 5 bucks in share this year, maybe as much as 10 bucks next year. Now, go listen to Netflix conference call last night. They're calling about how they might one day be cash flow positive. One day. Hmm. In short, I think there's widespread recognition that 2020 is Tesla's breakout year. And their breakout is coming from China, thanks to a new factory they built over there in record time. Oh, and the company's building another plant in Germany next year to meet the European demand. So there's a roadmap for even bigger numbers in the out years. That means all those comparisons to Ford and General Motors, they're fatuous. It's like saying that cheap Commodity semiconductors like DRAMs should be valued the same as proprietary microprocessors from AMD or proprietary graphic chips from NVIDIA. That is ridiculous. Commodity chips will never be valued like special chips. Wouldn't you ever in the commodity auto business stop comparing their market capitalizations to Tesla, which is a thousand times more proprietary. Instead, I think it makes more sense to think of them as a tech company you know, kind of along the lines of NVIDIA or AMD. If those have become the relevant comparisons, it makes total sense that the stock would be moving relentlessly higher here. And while I hate to recommend anything that's run this much, you know what? I think Tesla's got more upside. Stick with Kramer. After the close tonight, Terradite, which Steve Weiss recommended this very afternoon on Scott Wagner's Show reported one of the great blowouts of all time, and the stock is up 10%. Texas Interest reported a good quarter, maybe not good enough for everybody, but I like that one. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise i would find it just few right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow.